Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. This episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon. Visit our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com, and click the support button to support us on Patreon. There's some really awesome tiers of support, and you get some really awesome perks, including one more we'll discuss later today that we're bringing back. So get ready for such a fun episode today, and without further ado, let's get into it. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name is CJ, and I'm joined by my good friends and co-hosts. I'm Brittany. And I'm Matt. And we got a pretty fun episode planned for this week. Uh, but before we really get into it, what have, uh, what have you guys been up to this week? Not much, frankly. I'm chugging away, got classwork, and teaching classwork and being a student classwork and research work and non-research work and other things that are in the projects. So I'm just chugging right now is the only way I can describe it, but it's all, it's all in good fun and I love it like the Dickens. So. I really haven't been much up to too much. Um, just coming back from a visit in Chicago, which is always a wonderful time. I always miss it. Um, it's better than being in a state of misery. But yeah, I'm just just getting home from that and enjoying enjoying all of those memories. Well, it sounds like Matt, you've been pretty busy, but Brittany, it seems like you had a pretty good last couple of weeks. Um, I've been okay this week. Uh, you know, we've uh, since our last episode's been the Great Backyard Bird Count, so I've been outside doing some birding, getting my last uh, spits of winter birding uh, out. Saw some common red poles. That was really exciting. And really just getting outside. You know, I'm really excited for the nice warm weather. <laughs> I'll just say that much. But with uh, kind of our check-in out of the way, let's get into our first segment, the creature feature. Today, the creature we are going to be featuring Looks like a work of art in and of itself. This bird is painted with beautiful reds, emerald greens, and sapphire blues. And so what work of art could we possibly be talking about? This beautiful bird is none other than the broad-billed hummingbird. These little birds reside in Mexico, but they can be found all the way through the southwest parts of the United States. These birds find just as brightly colored flowers as they are, and they can drink up to 1.6 to 1.7 times its own body weight in nectar. These little birds will also eat insects on top of that nectar diet, but they are, groups of them are actually referred to as uh, bouquets or shimmerings, just, and these nicknames definitely kind of suit these little works of art with their brightly colored, both Males and females are brightly colored, um, but there is some sexual dimorphism within them where there's more of those sapphire blues in the males versus the more emerald greens in the females. And they have these beautiful red beaks with a little black tip. 
what are some of our thoughts or if anybody does anybody else know anything else about the broad build hummingbird not so much a explicit broad build hummingbird fact but it is a just a hummingbird fact in general and i think one of my favorite things about them is you know talking about them as works of art which they absolutely are i mean if you ever get the chance to go to southwestern United States and Arizona and see all the incredible hummingbird diversity there. Take it, take it, just take it, just take it. I don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Just go, just go. They are an incredibly understated, I would say, taxonomic group when talking about wildlife watching in general. You know, within birders and birds, they're pretty, pretty high caliber, but they're really charismatic. And my favorite thing about them is that the, the the beautiful iridescent shimmering feathers that are under their chin, you know, that that comprise of their throat, it's known as a gorget, which I love because they're very gorgeous. Yeah, uh, Brittany, you mentioned, uh, and and Matt, you mentioned there too, the wild diversity of hummingbirds in uh, in Southwest United States. Myself and uh, guest of the podcast today, Maggie Warren. We're actually able to see a broad-billed hummingbird up here in Chicago last summer. And it was truly stunning. They, It was just a single bird kind of made its way up to Chicago. No one really knows how it got here. And it was kind of fluttering in between these honey locust trees. It was gorgeous. And I'm sure uh guest today, Maggie Warren, will talk a lot more about it. So excited to talk about that with Maggie. But thanks for sharing our thoughts on the broad-billed hummingbird, everybody. Uh, let's move on to our next segment, Current Events. Alrighty, so today I have for you all an event, and guess what? It is current. I found a really, really sick article in my favorite news source. It's mangabay.com, uh, written by Oscar Bernal Ocaña on February 15th, 2022, and it's titled Giant Anteaters Lead Biodiversity Resurgence in Argentina's Ibera. And before, before I even talk about the article... I noticed down at the uh, kind of the side panel on their, their site that you can share their newsletters and their resources and their write-ups and all their articles for absolutely free, um, which I think is a huge, huge, huge thing. You can republish here. It says you may republish Manga Bay content in your publication at no cost. That's huge. For scientific discourse, I think a lot of people don't realize how much of science is paywalled. Just looking at the journal system within academia or having to sign on for certain scientific publications that cost money, right? Newsletters from the NSF cost money. And granted, all of them cost money to put out too, but it is important to have access just colloquially to conservation and science news. And so I just wanted to bring that up. But Going into the article itself, as it's titled, essentially, the giant anteater has been a blueprint species for rewilding a reserve in Argentina called the Ibera Reserve. And a lot of species going back to like the, the 1980s and 1990s such that are considered to be really charismatic species in that region had gone extinct decades earlier before their um, conservation plan started. And so 
basically what they did was they they got together about a year before um, this program known as the Conservation Land Trust, and now it's the Rewilding Foundation. But this program came together and was like, we need to rewild in this park, in this reserve. And so they were trying to put together like a, a blueprint plan on how to do it. And what they decided on was getting a certain test species to see how it would work. You know, reserves are really important and really interesting in, in the dynamic of that. They are also readily and supposed to be accessed by humans. And so not only do you have this reintroduction from like a conservation standpoint, there is also a human standpoint that goes into reintroduction and rewilding that occurs in these kinds of areas. You know, you couldn't just go into the city of Chicago and let loose a pair of mountain lions. Like the dynamic doesn't exactly exist there anymore. And so what they did was they decided on the giant anteater because it's a fairly docile species. It's not predatory was a big one because jaguars were another thing that they were toying around with, but still was slightly controversial at the time, especially with the the human jaguar dynamics that have existed, um, especially based on agriculture. And so they landed on the giant anteater, but also because even though they do find themselves in sets of wildlife conflict, usually with people with dogs and such, where, you know, you've got this multi-animal conflict that then leads to human conflict as well, because people go and protect their dogs. They decided on the giant anteater, and in 2007, they released a pair. Uh, since then, this has been a wildly successful program where they started, and they had a couple tiers of things that they do. Um, they release, they quarantine, uh, they start breeding populations in captivity that then are now becoming native and wild breeding populations because they can sustain themselves now and they've become acclimated to their environment. Um, and today, more than 200 anteaters live free out of four population centers in that reserve. So you have four different populations that total 200 anteaters in the whole entire metapopulation that's in the reserve. And a metapopulation is essentially a population network of populations. So if you go one, one branch higher, if you have multiple populations in the same region that can dynamically interact with each other, that's called a metapopulation. And so the reintroduction program not only just reintroduced them, but it also rescued anteaters from hunters and people who were keeping them as pets because now they were protected in this reserve. They were fixated at a community standpoint. And once you see the value of something in nature, in the wild, it kind of changes the way that you look at it just colloquially in general. And the biggest part of that is that, like I said before, this was a test species that has since provided the blueprint for reintroducing tons of other incredibly charismatic species. Some of those include pampas deer, giant river otters, as well as red and green macaws. And so basically this reserve and this organization have been doing incredible work in trying to figure out what is the best path for re rewilding. They seem to have figured it out right. It does point out that in order to really demonstrate, you're going to have to have lots of long-term data, but this is about the most encouraging sign you could see at the start, and I'm very excited to keep following up on this and seeing how this story plays out because it's conservation in real time. I appreciate all of your uh, chat. First of all, in the beginning, you're kind of just about like the accessibility of science through MongoBay. So really appreciate that. We're going to get into more about accessibility in science through some wildlife art in just a bit. But 
I think it's really, really cool when you're talking about the interactions between human populations and these reintroduced populations of wild species. It's something that I'm really passionate in discussing is the impact that wildlife restoration and conservation in general has on local people. And it's something that isn't talked about enough. And we talked about it a lot last week with our Belleville Prairie episode. Um, but I'm really curious to see the continuation of this project um, and how it could potentially introduce a bunch of other native species. So that's really, really exciting. Before we jump into our main topic today, I just want to remind everybody that this episode is brought to you by our Patreon. Please visit our Patreon at www.theprettybunchpodcast.com. Click on that support tab and visit our Patreon. Like I mentioned at the top, there's a ton of different tiers of support, including one where you can ask the question of the day. So let's get that out of the way right now. Let's do our question of the day. Are you guys okay with that? Certainly works for me. Let's do it. Cool. Well, I have a pretty good question here. Um, I am uh, keeping my eye on spring migration. So what is our favorite spring-themed animal? Personally for me, and this is just a purely personal thing um, based on experience with bird banding and getting to have some really cool up-close experience with a lot of the migratory species that come through my area, um, slightly, slightly before they reach UCJ, ever, ever so slightly. Um, I'm just a little bit more south. I think the one that I always look to as my favorite signal of spring has to be the oven bird. Um, it's a species of neotropical migrant warbler. So this is a bird that migrates from South and Central America to its breeding grounds, either in the boreal forest or in the case of the oven bird, it's actually a little bit more South. Um, actually, their most densely populated breeding grounds used to be right where I am. And they're called oven birds because their nests on lay on the ground like little Dutch ovens. Um, and so the, the thought of that, uh, the really cool, you know, seasonality that comes with them, the uh, the really distinctive song that they make. Yeah. And the really cool song that, you know, sounds like just repeated teacher, teacher, teacher throughout the woods. Um, really, really distinctive. And not to mention the fact that I just think they're really fun little birds. And I think it's fun that while all the other warblers are hanging out in the trees, they're just chilling on the ground. Um, and so that's my, I think that's my signal for spring. When I hear oven birds starting to sing, I know we're back. So quick fun facts is I've never done spring birding. I've actually only done winter birding with both of you. I mean, you could do just like a spring animal. That's why I left it vague. However, no, oh, I've, oh. Got, I've got two. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I've got two. Now, I'm excited. One's a bird, one's not a bird. That's okay. Um, but I, every spring, really look forward to all of the zoos, social media pages with all of their spring babies. It is yes. my favorite time because, first of all, baby animal, anything, adorable. Truly. Baby truly. spiders, you can I, – I can probably convince somebody of being cute, and I don't like yeah. spiders. Fact. However, I love it, and it makes me really excited that spring is nearing. But the other one, it's the only bird that I've ever associated with spring, is the cardinal. And I don't really know if they're a spring uh, – uh, 
cool, like considered a spring bird. But as a kid, my grandma would always say, when you see a cardinal, spring's coming. And so unfortunately, my grandma has now passed away. But now every single time I think uh, or see cardinals, um, specifically male cardinals, I think of her and I think about spring and it gets me very excited for spring. I love that story. I love that story. Yeah, cardinals are, I think, Matt, you can confirm this, but I'm pretty sure they're a year-round resident, but I think they do get that really, really bright red plumage come springtime, so definitely yeah. a good indicator. Yeah, they um they go through a special little molt, actually, where they get even more red coming in. So, like, you, you get bright pops of red in the winter, but then there's a little extra oomph. Yeah, that's how you know it's springtime. I love it. Um, For me, I think this has to be my favorite and my least favorite, and it is the red-winged blackbird. When I see a red-winged blackbird, I know it's springtime. <laughs> I know that the winter has officially ended because the red-winged blackbirds have returned. Um, last year during uh, my backyard bird count, it was the middle of a snowstorm, and I saw a single red-winged blackbird hanging out, and that was made, made, made me tough through the rest of the snow because I, uh, I felt spring on the way. So that is my um, answer to my favorite spring and also my least favorite spring animal is the red-winged blackbird. But thank you both for your answers. That was our question of the day segment. Um, and just as a reminder, this segment was brought to you by our Patreon. Visit www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. Click that support button and visit our Patreon. There's some really awesome tiers of support there. With all of that out of the way, let's move on to our main topic. So we are here now with Maggie Warren. Maggie, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Maggie Warren, she, her pronouns. I'm a wildlife artist and environmental educator. I'm based in the Chicago right now, Chicago area. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about wildlife art with everyone today. Been a long time listener, so it's an honor to be here. We are just so happy to have you. Thank you so much for one, being a listener and two, being a guest on our podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. Yeah. Um, just to kind of start off, I'll, I'll toss off the first question here. You mentioned you're a wildlife artist. What does it mean? Like, what is conservation art, wildlife art? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so art is such a very vague term. It can encompass so many different types of mediums, and it is usually defined as visual communication as a way of communicating an idea or celebrating something. And art in general is a great catalyst for conservation action. So I think the science communication research really helps support how important art is for helping inspire conservation action and also inspire empathy and all sorts of wonderful things. So how you define it though, is really up to each individual person because there's a whole bunch of plethora of things that all combine into conservation art, wildlife art. So there's a lot of conservation art and I'm very excited to talk about it. But in particular, like what about conservation art that is it that draws you to it? Why do you personally do conservation artwork? That's a great question. I feel like art and science were like a pair made in heaven. I feel like the combination of the two really helps amplify the goodness of both of the fields. So in art and science, there's a lot of overlap of being able to observe closely, trying to understand things, trying to solve things, creative problem solving and trying to communicate your ideas is both of art and science do those things. So ever since I was little, I would like to use art as a way to understand the world around me. So I would be drawing hundreds of birds and like human eyes and 
book covers I would try to copy and all sorts of different types of things just to understand more and try to capture more and celebrate more. So I really was so grateful to be able to take art and science courses in tandem in college. And it helped make me like process what I was learning in lab by then drawing like bioluminescent jellyfish and wood carvings or like doing like a home series about all sorts of different types of homes of animals and then like giving them like a Victoria like house design style and like other types of things where I was able to combine and make connections and make those personal connections with these abstract concepts that I really appreciated and loved. And it, I did wildlife photography and illustration and wood carving and printmaking and all sorts of different things. So it's something that if you are into science, I highly recommend you think about art as a fun hobby. And then if you're into art, I really recommend you think about understanding the natural history of the world around you because they really are made for each other, art and science. That's, I think that's so beautifully put because they do go so hand in hand with each other. And it's just like a beautiful little friendship. Can you uh, kind of explain maybe a little bit more, or expand on how conservation art can kind of lead into science communication? Yeah, I think it's interesting because science communication in general, I was interested in learning about. So I spent a lot of time in grad school trying to understand about science communication in order to be a more effective science advocate and also environmental educator. So I wanted to understand like, how are we currently communicating science to figure out what's not working really well. So there's a few different ways that people are communicating science. And a lot of times you think of frames of ways to organize and categorize information. And it's not a like we're cherry picking facts and deciding and spinning. It's just the way we're presenting and connecting information. So Currently, there's a deficit framework or a negative framework that is used in science communication. Deficit framework, you can think of a scientist just shouting facts into an abyss, like, there's climate change, and it's horrible. Everyone, it's horrible. And it's just shouting and shouting the same facts over and over again, and anticipating that by saying your facts, you're going to result in participants engaging in a conservation action when there tends to be no research supporting that shouting facts and information is going to make people inspired to pursue conservation action or environmentally friendly behaviors. So the deficit model is more of like a top down. It's assuming that the scientist has all the information and the public has none. And it's a cognitive deficient public, which is an assumption that is not true. And so the art does a great way of helping provide a more personal connection and it helps make it so it isn't a top-down approach but more of a collaboration and conversation between the artist and the viewer and similarly the negative framework is apocalyptic and you can see that everywhere especially for environmental communication and art does a great job of inspiring hope which is one of the most effective ways to communicate science of solution oriented just like you guys do on this podcast where you guys are always focusing on solutions and ways for people to become involved, art is a great way to kind of be a catalyst for that. So it helps address those two prevalent themes that are not super effective in science communication. First of all, I do really appreciate um, kind of the angle that you came with this because I know you were talking about there's a lot of negativity in conservation ecology. Mm -hmm. That is, it is warranted, I guess, in a way, but it yeah. is also the thickest mud to track through i would oh. say in the mm -hmm. process of inquiry um 
And I think the brevity with which you attack life is always been very inspiring. I don't want to claim that I haven't known you for a while ish. <laughs> Ish. I appreciate that. But I've always appreciated your perspective and all that. And it's really helped me develop in my field as well. Um, oh. And I learned a lot from you just working with you. And I was wondering what significance of art that you've been able to find in like a teaching tool to others as well. Yeah, I I, also, I resonate with so much of what you're saying, because I feel like when I was in school, I was searching for hope always in the field of environmental conservation and um every ecology class like i was interesting there's papers that even show track the stages of grief that conservationists go through when they're learning and things that they love are there's either like population declines or all sorts of different types of uh systems that compound on compound on each other and create a lot of negativity so i feel like i've always been trying to search for hope and then also to like justify why hope is so important too. So I feel like the science communication research was like so incredibly validating because it's a lot of things that you do in informal education already. So like you are inherently not going to go to a bunch of children and tell them that the planet is on fire and there's no hope because that's not going to inspire a lot of action. And it's also not going to cause any empathy or curiosity or any of the things that you're hoping to achieve through environmental education. So it was incredibly validating that the science communication research really supports like the NAI, the National Institute uh, Interpreter of Association, and all sorts of other types of like uh, training that really helps equip informal educators to focus on personal relevancy, on communication, of being very collaborative. And I feel like art is just a great way to help meet people where they are. It's a way to understand what their interests are and what they're excited about and what lights them up and brings them joy. And it's a way for you to then connect their joy and their enthusiasm to the environment and what they're observing and what they're noticing. It's been my favorite types of programs have been ones where it's the participants creating beautiful things and that's connected to all the wonderful things that we were learning, but it's all based off that like they are the authors, they're the creators, and they're the ones who are leading the charge. And it's just a great way to form that connection and that sense of community too. Like if we're all makers here creating something to celebrate uh, like the giant morph blue butterfly and like we made a mural together and it's at the Chicago Public Library right now. I don't know if it's still there, but it was there years ago, pre-pandemic. And having that sense of community is just such an important way of building that identity, which I feel like is one of the well, it, it is one of the leading ways to inspire environmental behaviors is having a sense of identity. It's like, I'm a conservationist. I'm someone who takes action. And I'm part of this community of other people who are seeing the same things and understanding the gravity of the situation, but choosing not to be apathetic and are taking action. So it's something that even little kids and adults really benefit from that type of framing. And I feel like the things that they're like, oh, well, for little kids, I highly recommend this. I'm like, oh, I wish I was taught this way. I feel like I would have been spent a lot less time writing kind of angsty poetry about like how uh, there's going to be no more polar bears or drawing artwork that was incredibly depressing about sea turtles and plastic and other types of things or like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So I feel like I would have had a different approach that would have helped inspire a lot more action instead of being like a protest of one in my school and things like that. I just want to really comment on that because that was something that like as you were talking about 
conservation art, I just kept thinking about how it's applicable to so many age groups. So I, mm -hmm. when I was teaching preschool kids and kindergarten kids, we used to have them collect the things that they really liked around nature and bring back and we let them create whatever they wanted. It was usually an animal that they saw, but made from like the leaves and the twigs and the things that they, they picked and all of like their little goodies. And it made them so excited and they got to share and connect together. And it, I just love that it's, there's no age limit, right? Like mm -hmm. anybody can do it from little to all the way till you're a hundred and whatever. And I just think it's a great way to build, like you were saying, building that community, but also just connecting with, potentially connecting with generations that you normally wouldn't. And I think it's beautiful. I feel like it's been helpful, like working with children. Cause I feel like for art now, especially when you're older, it feels like it's something that like, if you didn't start doing this, like don't even look at it. Don't pick up a paintbrush. You didn't, you weren't born with it in your hands. And it's, I feel like especially been by creating programs that really focus on the growth mindset, which is the like progress over perfection and the idea that you can continuously learn and make mistakes and how mistakes are wonderful that having that be internalized as an adult has been incredibly helpful. And I feel like, especially for your listeners are all sorts of different types of ages that I feel like having that perspective when you're trying to try a new hobby or something that is exciting for you, because art can look different. Like I really enjoy scientific illustration, which is like the most meticulous, some could say not exciting, like and fun because it's like incredibly accurate. It's like, I use the smallest pen available and I have like, get carpal tunnel and like my eyes hurt so you could also do things that are a little bit less intensive and a little bit more like celebratory and expressive with a whole other types of range of hobbies that you could do even from like photography which i know that a lot of you guys are photographers as well but of different types of ways to engage with different mediums and just understanding that just practicing and learning is going to be a way to continue to grow Maggie, this conversation has really taken me back, as it always does. Um, a, a, a background that all of us share is a background in interpretation, informal ed, mm. and science communication. And every single time that we have a conversation like this on the Birdie Bunch podcast, I always misquote this quote. So I've looked it up this time. <laughs> and it's uh, a quote by Freeman Tilden, who's one of the fathers of interpretation. And it's through interpretation, understanding, through understanding, appreciation, and through appreciation, protection. And that quote, really just resonated with me when you were talking mm -hmm. about like art inspiring young people like getting them excited about it right and you know all of us in our shared collective past have worked with young people you know and getting them excited about conservation and that's how you start it right you just start by finding that spark and art can really be that spark for so many people 100 percent and I just found that really, really beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like in talking with you just today, Maggie, I would actually argue that art is just like a, it's like a visual interpretation. 10,000%, in Matt, yeah. It takes it and translates it to a visual means or something like that. Yeah. Which leads me to my completely unrelated question for you as well. Love this. Because I'm curious. What piece of work have you done that you have most resonated with like the one that you you finished and you're like hell yeah that's a really great question i feel like i uh really love doing artwork that's specific to the midwest flora and fauna so i really like focusing on chicago ecology especially 
urban ecology. I feel like just because of our interpretation paths in the Chicagoland area of having a greater appreciation for our urban wildlife and how the wildlife in our urban spaces is just as beautiful and unique and often underlooked. So I feel like doing illustrations of the native flora here that you can see in our backyards or in our apartment buildings. I'm looking at my window now and I saw a cardinal there earlier. So like the being able to celebrate the local like heroes of the Chicago wilderness has been one of my more exciting uh, series that I've done. But I really enjoyed like focusing on animal homes and like making prints of animal homes that have like chandeliers or like a Victorian house instead of a shell and a hermit crab or like other types of ways to try to make that personal connection of how like I really like interior design. So like being able to connect our homes and how we symbolize homes into wild spaces has been really exciting. But it's there's lots of things I'm excited about doing too. So I feel like it's what's exciting about art is that you can kind of run with your passions and it's just an excuse to learn and research a bunch of stuff about things that you find really exciting. So it is one of the more exciting hobbies of that. There's a lot of series I'm looking forward to doing too. Um, I actually have um, an art piece done by you, Maggie, and it was a gift, which uh, I, I adore. I'm it's hanging so on my wall right in front of me, actually. <laughs> and it is of the broad-billed hummingbird that came to Chicago uh, last summer. So yes. that was our creature feature for today. What kind of thoughts and feelings did doing that artwork of this very special Chicago migrant uh, have for I you? Really feel like the, I always say that I always learn new things while drawing because it's especially like doing very detailed drawings. It's so fun to understand like the structure and the form. And I feel like illustration does such a great job of capturing, like I have to look at many, many photos in order to get all those really tiny details. So it's just a great way to spend like a lot of quality time with like animals that you're really excited about. So it was able to kind of prolong the celebratory period of me seeing one of the rarest birds I might ever see in my life by drawing it for hours, I was like, wow, this is still just as exciting. And it really helped uh, as a celebratory, like commemorative way of like crystallizing a moment that I found really exciting. And I'm new to the birding world and I really appreciate CJ on their guidance of showing me around all sorts of different parts of Chicago. And I've just been very uh, grateful to be welcomed by the community. So I wanted to do something that was helping celebrate this moment that was really exciting for all sorts of different birders of traveling really far to Labau Woods in order to see this cute hummingbird. That's one thing I will also comment on CJ getting, I am not, I have not been a birder. It's not been like my, I, I think it's very fascinating, but it's not been my special interest. Yeah. You're yeah. towing the line, Britta. <laughs> You're towing the line. Um, but um cj brought me a bird feeder it is one of my favorite things in the morning like i sat on my counter with my cup of coffee and watch my birds and squirrels um kind of just enjoy but it has also gotten my husband so into birding he's got the e-birder downloaded oh he's got yes. books like coming he is all about it and it's something that he's been like oh, i know this bird and i can share and it's just something like community-wide can it's yeah. just beautiful and it's been it's been nice and we have i have cj also to thank for that and uh fortunately for the both of you we have our good friend matt balaga to thank for that <laughs> <laughs> it's full circle <laughs> Look what you did, Matt. Yeah, you it's, it's honestly your fault. Uh, there's there's you. legitimately, there, I, I just want to say, I may look upset, but I think in like early 2020, 
I tweeted, I just got my family into birding. First them, now the world. So like, this is <laughs> now you got the world. This has been architected for a while. This is a master oh, the game, plan, oh, really. The long game. Matt's playing the long game. <laughs> it's like the hummingbird effect instead of the butterfly effect. Oh, like you're very good, Forever oh, good. good. Has uh-huh. been into birding now. CJ has an illustration of a broad-billed hummingbird in their house. Yeah. Maggie, uh, one thing that you mentioned was new series that you're excited about. Do you have a new series you're excited about that you can yeah. share or no? <laughs> I am not, like, under any obligation not to share anything because it's just me <laughs> doodling in my spare time. Fair but enough. I'm working on a Save the Bell Bull Prairie. I was inspired by your podcast. I was listening to it just a few days ago. And I, there's so many beautiful species to be able to learn more about. And I'm, I've already drawn the rusty patch bumblebee, but I mean, it's exciting to keep drawing them. So I'm going to probably do that species and then look up some of the other endangered species. I also am excited to do one that's on the female warblers. Cause you yes. noticed this when we were birding that yeah. I just can't tell them apart. And there's not a lot of research done uh-huh. or field guides that are really specifically helping out the female warblers get their attention and their share of the excitement of warbler season that was so, the one i was mostly mostly thinking and i was like <laughs> a leading because part. you and i have birded many times together maggie and yeah. i always love going out with you birding I, I too. and especially during this past spring and fall migration you and i were out there just so confused, <laughs> so confused. Yeah. and every bird was a lifer for me and every time Same. a veteran would be like, really you've never seen this before like this is i think my second spring migration and i'm still like i've never seen that that's new to me it's crazy it is something that i just feel so grateful that we're part of such an exciting flyway i feel like anytime i have the chance now to talk to kids about it i'm like did you know that yeah. we are situated in this beautiful convalescence like convalescence of a flyway and the lake makes it so it's just a perfect i'm sure spot. they love all that lingo yeah they really and it's not a mouthful at all not at all <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the Birdie Munch podcast, Maggie. We have like, I don't know, a minute or two. So before we wrap up, do you have any questions for us? Ooh, I would love to see how you guys, because I feel like podcasting is an art form as well. So I feel like it would be great to see how you're like, when thinking about the podcast and you guys are thinking of all these science communication things from your informal background. So it'd be exciting just to see if there's anything that you guys like really intentionally uh, were creating and like you would like to uh, showcase just because the behind the scenes is always really interesting. Uh, I'm bad at art in the sense that I've never tried to be good at art and art for me especially with like trying to do graphic design for the podcast and stuff like that. It has been a means of getting people to laugh. And Mm. so I have always looked at it as I don't have to own my crap because my goal is for it to look like crap. (laughs) And so if it looks like crap and I don't put in the effort to make it not look like crap, then they're laughing at it for being a self-reflective thing rather than, Oh no, this bro just ain't got no skills. However, I will say that I think one of the most gratifying things for me was like when we set up the website all together and kind of like the the way that you could navigate being able to go through and mechanistically just kind of toy around with what was going on. I think it was like a week-long project that we all worked on. And I really do appreciate just like 
being able to express what I found to be the foundation of the podcast and the main tenets in a way that allowed people who hadn't listened yet mm -hmm. to experience in another manner, I guess. And yeah. I thought it was very artistic in a way. I think um, it's really, that's a beautiful example because it is a gorgeous website. I feel like you did such a great job on it, all of you guys. And it's, it, it, uh, you so quickly get like everything that you guys are all about is like, oh, here it is all in a beautifully visual display. So I totally think that makes sense. I just want to shout out real quick. That website was um, um, shouted out for being very good by none other than Ray Brown on Ray Brown's Talking Birds. When I was a guest on that show, he was just like, I love your website. Who designed it? And I was like, that was my co-host, Matt Balaga. Can I just say that was the weirdest thing to hear without any like prior knowledge either? Because I knew CJ had been on. And so I was like, well, I got to listen. Plus, Ray, if you're listening, you're not. But if you are, I listen whenever it comes out. I love Ray Brown's Talking Birds. And so just hearing all of a sudden our, our little old website getting shouted out by Ray, I was like, huh interesting it was a weird weird full circle moment for me i think for me that uh, when it comes to art in this podcast i i very much enjoy and i put a lot of thought and effort behind a lot of like our creature features because it's something that i do just every single day for work but it's something that i find so important important because you're you're creating this message and i think it's i i, I want to almost compare it to poetry because you've got this message that you can eloquently and beautifully make and it can just be the facts and we were talking about science communication earlier and and conservation art and i think that being able to do creature features is that beautiful combo of those two because i'm taking facts but i can i can uh, Bring it, bring it down to a level that anybody can understand and elevate it to a level that anybody can understand. I think you there's so many intricacies and, and waves and flows that kind of like a like a, a river or whatever. Um, but you're doing all of that just through by just talking about things that Pat that I'm passionate about, which is animals and, and conservation, but getting to share it in different ways. And so I think I think that one for me is is where I, I get that. I think you've put that really beautifully because it's like storytelling. It's what we do is storytelling. Like mm -hmm. that's what a podcast Absolutely. is at the end of the day is storytelling. Like from our creature feature through their through our main topic, it's all it's all a big story. And I think that uh, we we've done some very specific episodes that have felt very artistic in the way that we've put them out. For example, I think Matt has really led a, a beautiful charge on the spooky bunch. It is probably like I'm not even a scary person. Like, I'm not. I don't not a big spooky season person, but like I adore the Spooky Bunch for the reason that is it is a masterclass in storytelling, like truly. From start from like start of the October to end of October, sitting around and, the campfire. Yeah, like, yeah. and I think it really goes. It's a team effort because we all work very hard to pull the different pieces right so Brittany talked a lot about like writing the the content and kind of coming up with this beautiful language to describe what we're talking about mm -hmm. matt has orchestrated this big outline of exactly how the entire spooky bunch is going to lay out and then i'm far behind the scenes um editing it with some of uh, what i think are kind of fun editing things for example changing our theme during the spooky bunch or you know adding campfire sounds to make it more thematic 
And I think that's why I really enjoy editing. I, I sometimes dislike it, but I really enjoy it because it can be really fun to add things that are funny. For example, I'm going to put in a fart noise right now. Very good. Because you can. Absolutely, I can. <laughs> I think narrative is so important in general for communicating. And I feel like there's just so many great examples of artists being able to like focus on a species and tell the story over time or because art is a visual medium, which I know podcasts aren't the great best way to talk about art, but it's able to make things that are invisible visible, like relationships and connections and like that temporal distance where things are really far away and you can make it seem uh, like a personal connection, like things like climate change and whatnot like that. I feel like the storytelling and that visibility are some of the exciting things about art too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Maggie. Um, we really loved having you on the podcast. This conversation has been truly, truly wonderful. <laughs> um, before we let you go, is it where can our, our nature lovers find you on Ooh. the social meds? Yeah, I was I am on Instagram and I'm at Maggie Warren Studio on Instagram. And on my Instagram, I also have a link to my website. I'm gonna be applying to be part of the brushwood holiday market. It's, it's starting a new spring market. So I'll be doing that in the springtime, which is exciting. And the Brushwood Nature Center is a great way to connect with other local artists in the Chicago region. They have two now two different fairs for a way to support different artists. And also all the artwork is nature centered. So it's a way for it to you to celebrate conservation art by supporting Brushwood. That's beautiful. I love nature art. We all love nature art, conservation art, wildlife art, and uh, we can all look into all of those resources that you've put out for finding some of that. <laughs> I have lots of fun artists that you guys can watch videos of and also some fun resources for science communication in general, but it's just such a wonderful topic to talk about. So Amazing. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for coming on. We really loved having you. Um, and now we'll pop back to the rest of the episode. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thanks, guys. It was so fun. <laughs>that was absolutely wonderful thank you so much maggie for coming on the podcast it is so wonderful to speak to you as always so really really grateful you can come on and talk about all of the amazing things we talked about but with our episode out of the way we kind of covered where you can find maggie on social media but where can we find y'all on the social meds i'm on the gram my gram handle is m-a-t-t-v is in victor a-l-i-g-a i'm at that's where i'm at you can also find me on Instagram at the Brittany Bunch, uh, T H E B is in Brichter, R I T T A N Y underscore uh, B is in Boy U N C H. I haven't done it yet. I had to. <laughs> Love you, Matt. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, you can also find me on the social media at Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And I'm still posting content from uh, from Texas. So I mentioned a few weeks ago I went to Texas. Still posting that Texas content, that sweet, sweet Texas content. Um, that's what I'm going to call it. So uh, <laughs> uh, where can you find all of us collectively? That is on Instagram at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. And we post all kinds of fun stuff. We post teasers. We post cut clips. We post um, – sometimes we post fun videos. Sometimes we post funny reels. Um, and sometimes we just post some of our own photography because we're pretty talented ourselves. We're also doing um, a couple different things, you know, on our Instagram to kind of continue to promote the awesome stuff that we do and see. Um, we've been doing some birdie ride recommends and, and that's 
some awesome stuff that we are interested in that you might be interested in, as well as some zoo reviews, some facilities that we visit that you might want to visit sometime too. That's our social media. I've plugged it a few times on this uh, episode so far, but you can visit our website at thebirdiewunchpodcast.com. And we have all kinds of things on there. We have, you can listen on our website. There's a blog post with resources from this episode, as well as a support us tab. I've mentioned our Patreon and our merch store. We have some really awesome merch. There's even more merch coming soon, so keep an eye out for that. But our Patreon, there's some really awesome tiers of support. And if you support us at any tier, you get a shout out here on the podcast. So thank you so much to Gabe Anderle for being our patron. You are so wonderful. We thank you so much. In addition to supporting us financially, you can also support us for free just by leaving us a review. If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, we will read we stop. We will read your review out here on the podcast. So make sure to leave us a review. No new reviews this week, but we will come back next week with hopefully all of your new reviews. If you don't listen to Apple Podcast, totally understandable. But you can also share support this podcast for free just by sharing this podcast with a friend. So if you learned something about wildlife art today and you want to share it with somebody, do it. That's how we grow. That's how our nature lover fan base continues to expand. Anything else you want to say, folks? No. But I really hey. want you to do that again, but say that's all, folks. Hey, but blah, 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 that's all, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much nature lovers have a wonderful rest of your week we'll see you in a couple and until then we'll catch you next time thank you for joining us for another episode of the birdie bunch podcast we would like to thank sarah dunlap for designing our logos and connor whitman for being our music producer the mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.